why this was such a big deal. Because I've had some readers of the book who come from, you know, very mainline Christian traditions or who are not religious and are like, well, why is this such a big deal? Like, I don't like the who don't get why it was such a devastating thing um, yeah. for this to happen, especially, you know, when it did, which was, you know, Hello, and welcome to Evangel Bros, your weekly podcast about biblical literacy, discipleship, and historical slash cultural context. I'm your host for the week, George Benson. And as you know, our co-host Don is on sabbatical right now, and we wish him well during that. But um, in the meantime, we're trying to figure out ways to uh, fill. And normally we would spend our time talking about you know, uh, some biblical passage and talking about the historical and cultural context of it, like I said in the opening. But this week, we're doing something different. Um, we are speaking with Stina Kilsmeyer Cook, the author of Blessed Are the Nuns, Mixed Faith, Marriage, and My Search for Spiritual Community, which came out yesterday, everywhere you can buy a fine book. Um, and I had the privilege of reading this and getting it early and being a part of the book launch. And I'm so excited to talk about this because it is a spiritual memoir and it's, I believe, really important for our generation. So without further ado, hello, Stina. Hi, thanks for having me on. Well, happy thanks for being here. Well, I, and we're happy to have you. So um, tell us about yourself. Uh, yeah. So my name is Stina. I'm a writer from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, I'm married and I've got two kids who are school age who started school yesterday, uh, distance learning. So always an adventure. Um, and let's see, I wrote this spiritual memoir because when my husband deconverted from Christianity a couple of years after we got married, I just went searching for any kind of book or resource to help me understand what does marriage look like now because the tradition that i was raised in and um went to college at, you know in, in an evangelical kind of college setting really harped on the need for god to be at the center of any marriage for it to be successful so that was the belief that i had and when my husband and i diverged in our beliefs i suddenly was left wondering how do i do this and so looking for models looking for examples of healthy marriages um, that have gone through something similar. And there are books out there, but they kind of um, kind of hit a very similar note around, oh, this is a tragedy. Oh, we're unequally yoked. Oh, I need to just pray my husband back to faith. And it kind of, the feel was kind of more of a, of a martyr sort of feel of this Christian woman having to pray for her husband to come back to faith. and 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 just kind of casting it in this really negative light. And I wanted to see, I wanted to, to know that there could be goodness and hope and joy and love and abundance in mixed faith marriages. And so that's part of what I talk about in the story is searching for that, searching for those models, searching for a spiritual community individually. And then I decided that I wanted to write about it because yeah, I had wished that I had had something like this, some kind of story to cling to or to at least helped me to realize that I wasn't alone in this journey. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's kind of the genesis behind the book. So sorry, that was a little bit more than just telling you a little bit about myself, but 
um, that's why I'm here is because I, I wrote this story. Yeah, no, honestly, that's great because you brought up a couple of things that I wanted to talk about and we can just jump off of that, which is um, most books talk about the tragedy of this, but mm -hmm. in, a, in a way you honor it and celebrate it and it's really earnest and raw. I mean, and when that was one of the things I appreciated about it was not only were you showing what could have been journal excerpts um, about struggling through this new reality, but also the conversations that you would have with your kids as in, you know, you talk about uh, walking down the street to visit the sisters, um, which we'll get to, and you yell at your kids not to run too far ahead. And the stream of consciousness, which you don't really get in most spiritual memoirs, which I absolutely loved. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so in the couple, in the first couple chapters, um, you talk about this kind of loss and how it's this new reality and you're trying to stumble your way through it um, to the point where uh, you even ask what you're supposed to do now with, with God and how do you um, figure out this unequally yokeness, which I remember as a baby pastor um, when I was in the evangelical tradition still, uh, just hearing all the time about how important it is to be equally yoked. And this might be a little triggering for some of our, our listeners, but um, the, the, the ridiculousness of it a little bit, which just, uh, you know, you, that, I, that was a theme that I noticed throughout it, which I absolutely love, but you bring up the um, desert mother and fathers and over the last few years, I've even spoken about it a bit on this podcast, those have become this uh, kind of longing, as in this, this idea of a monastic community where you are serving the poor, where you're searching out and trying to seek God in the margins in ways that really don't coincide with living in America. It's a lot harder, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and you even talk about new monasticism a little bit. So I'm just curious, what was it about uh, just that, that draw, that idea of um, the desert monastics and, and this concept in, in general that kind of made you uh, seek out the nuns or, or find some comfort in them? Yeah, well, I think what you're speaking to is, um, you know, for those of us who were formed in an evangelical tradition, and then have, you know, had our faith changed since then. I think there's this real longing then to see faith as part of not just part of this one expression, but being connected to a larger um, ancient context that spans centuries and cultures and realizing that if this one expression of Christianity is no longer working the way that it once did or that there's changes that are happening in my theology or whatever, um, that, yeah, I can find, there's a lot of space in the Christian tradition for different expressions. And so I think a lot of um, kind of post-evangelicals go looking into uh, monastic and ancient Christian traditions for that reason, is how do I still hold on to my faith, um, but make it, maybe see it with different eyes or find different practices or different rituals that, um, better connect with who I am and who, how I'm relating to God now. So I should say for listeners is that, you know, I write about my husband's deconversion, but it's really the story is also about my faith journey. Um, I didn't want to write a book about him 
in Tell His Story, I wanted to write a book about how his decision to not be a Christian or his journey not being a Christian, how that affected my faith. And so I think turning to monastic wisdom, building relationships with Catholic sisters, exploring traditions that are outside of the ones that I was familiar with, um, became kind of a, a lifeline of seeing and connecting to God in new and different ways than I had um, in the past. And so I think that the, there are a lot of people, um, like you were saying, kind of in this millennial generation who are kind of veering away from uh, uh, the traditional forms of Christianity that we grew up with, who are finding solace and comfort and new wisdom, I think, in those areas. Yeah, thank you. And I probably could have done a better job uh, setting you up for that's that okay. question. <laughs> um, speaking about how you actually uh, find the sisters in your neighborhood and, and where that even goes. But um, to, to jump on that, you said that you talked about your story with this, which is something we I, I said I wanted to talk about a little bit in our uh, pre-recorded conversation, which was this um, phenomena of leaving church or mixed faith couples, as in somebody is sticking with Christianity and somebody is moving away from it, especially who came out of the evangelical tradition, is prevalent in our society. This is something I've, I've seen friends uh, go through. And um, instead of taking the, the narrative and doing a martyr, woe is me scenario with your book, you take it and run and say, this is the new normal. And there are more people out there like this. You talk about an interfaith um, small group that you and your husband form at the end. And I'm curious, uh, you know, what it is, uh, have, you, have you heard from more people that have, that have been in the same situation? And how has it been kind of creating and finding this new community with um, the concept of instead of ignoring it, like generations have before, you know, you've got the people who will either just go to church and not say anything or um, just kind of refuse to acknowledge that elephant in the room of, of this. Um, well, sorry, I kind of lost the narrative with that question, but I think, you know, what, what made you want to say, okay, I'm going to write a new version of this story and have it be honest for once. Yeah, well, I think that, I mean, there's a couple things. I think just in general with what Christian writing um, has looked like in the last 15 years, people like Rachel Held Evans and, um, you know, writing honestly about doubt and faith and there being just a lot more open conversation about how you can wrestle with your faith. You can be uncertain. You can, um, you know, faith and doubt aren't necessarily, you know, mutually exclusive, right? I think that there's just been a lot more space created and conversation um, that's been happening, I think, amongst people who come from maybe uh, evangelical tradition. So I think that that's one part of it. Um, and yeah, sorry, what was the other part of your question? The... Oh, I'm sorry. The, um, the community that you've had built up around mm -hmm. this with what you and Josh, your husband, have kind of created mm -hmm. in, in your hometown. Yeah, I'm, it's been great. And I mean, whenever I post about um, mixed faith marriage or have had articles or essays or things like that, I always hear from people who are going through some, something similar. I think too that the book can, I'm hoping that the book can also appeal to people who love anyone who is outside of their faith tradition, you know, whether that be a 
spouse or parent or friend. I mean, we all are in relationship with people who believe differently than us. And I think also, even if you are both professing Christians or both professing the same faith within a marriage, you're always going to be in somewhat different places. I think this idea of true spiritual unity in the way that maybe it was described to me um, when I was, you know, trying to understand what it meant to be uh, in a Christian marriage. I think that we're always changing. Like the person that you are when you're, you know, Josh and I got married when we were 25 and now we're 36. You know, I would hope that we're pretty different than we, we were then. And everyone changes to some degree. Everyone's faith um, shifts. And so I think people can, I'm hoping that people can relate to it even, even if they're both uh, within the same faith tradition, but just that people, people change and who, you know, marriage is about learning to love and choosing to love the person that that person is today. Right. And not just holding on to this vision or version of them that they were when you first got married. But I think that there needs to be more stories and more conversation about, you know, that it's okay if people change and that you can still, I mean, it's, there's hard things that come with it uh, for sure. There's challenges and it's not easy. I think that it is easier for sure. If you, both stay within the same tradition, just in terms of finding community. Um, but, you know, there can be, I think, new ways that that community can be formed, this interfaith small group being one of the ways that we try to do that. Yeah, um, I mean, you just brought up a great point. The uh, the different parts in, in your relationships as far as down, how far down the journey you are. Um, you know, I think about my wife and I got married when we were 24, I believe. And the the concept that we had of how our marriage and ministry and life were going to go were completely blown out of the water a year. No, that's too much. Six, three, three months in. Okay. And, and uh, just the how we had been different parts um, through our marriage and through our story of me going through ministry and, and working in it and stepping away in it and how she was able to be the person that I thought I wanted to be during that time. And just the, the, the way that you write about that um, is great. Like I cannot remember the last time I read a book about marriage, especially in this, in the spiritual aspect that you, that you wrote about where it felt like, Oh yeah, I've been that I've been that I've been that she's been that. Um, and that was, I, I really appreciated that. Uh, and, and there was one point where kind of going along the same line where you say, we are spiritual explorers looking for new ways to find God. And when the church shows its ugly underbelly, many of my generation are looking for God outside institutional religions walls. And I feel like that that quote plays very heavily into what we're talking about, because especially for those of us who grew up evangelical, the moment that, um, Toto pulls away the curtain and we see the wizard is a fragile man mm-hmm. can be devastating. And we're not mm-hmm. taught to grapple with that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, I mean, it's, it's disillusionment, right? It's, it's, it, and there's a lot of loss that comes with that. And I think evangelicals, young evangelicals, depending on your political persuasion and, you know, in the last, you know, five years, depending, yeah, on your community and, and maybe political affiliation for sure. But there's just been a lot of loss and a lot of sense of, well, this is, these are the people who raised me. This is the community that taught me about my values and morality. 
and you know who I trusted to form me and then seeing such contradictions. I mean, and, and you can look at institutions in the Catholic church and in so many other areas too, where there's been similar kind of falling out with other kind of abuse scandals and what have you. Um, so you don't have to look very far, I think, to find uh, the ugly underbelly. I think there's just a much more openness around, yeah, doing this remixing and rebundling of religious practices and experiences, even not within the you know Christian tradition, but as I've gotten to know more agnostics and nuns, N-O-N-E-S, um, through the nuns and nuns community, um, you know, people, there's a lot of people who are really interested in these different practices and who have found and created new communities as a result. I think that the reality is that no matter where you practice your faith or spirituality, you know, they're all, I still see, you know, there's still flaws in, in every kind of system and community that you might try to form. And um, yeah, so I don't know, that's a little bit far afield of what you were just saying, but I think that, that that's true. I think a lot of people, even within the Christian tradition or in, in the church where I attend, you know, people who are exploring Ignatian and spirituality, it's a Baptist church, you know, people are exploring Ignatian spirituality, there's, you know, people talk about centering prayer or, um, you know, there's just people, there's a new contemplative service that they're starting with Taizé music. And, you know, I, I think people are just really interested in finding different grounding practices, um, both, and it's happening within the Christian church and it's also happening um, outside as well. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I, yeah. You, you, you bring a couple of good things. One of the things I want to actually jump off of with that is the nuns and nuns community that you helped started in the, uh, your, your city. Um, I was reading it. So we lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Oh, uh, cool. We were there for five or six years. And so it was great to see um, that shout out, but tell us more about the nuns and nun community. Yeah. So it's actually, um, it actually started right after Donald Trump was elected. Um, that was kind of the context. It was a group that was convened. I think it was at Harvard University. And it was young activists who were just devastated about the election. And, um, and it was, you know, older uh, w religious women who were in orders, different Catholic orders were sisters, coming together to have conversation and these young activists being like, how do you sustain your, this work? Because a lot of nuns and Catholic sisters, I mean, there's a great diversity among the Catholic orders as, as there is within Protestant denominations in terms of, you know, if people are kind of activist nuns or if they're more contemplative cloister nuns, there's a lot of variety. But in this context, you know, um, these were some of the sisters who've been really involved in social movements, really on the front lines of, you know, lots of social change. And, and so these young activists coming and saying, well, what, you know, what do you do? How do you sustain this work? How do you not get just totally burnt out? Um, the outrage, there's so much to be outraged about. Where do you find grounding and community? And so it wasn't, these were young people who didn't necessarily have any kind of religious affiliation or maybe had at one point and then walked away from the, the, the tradition that they've been raised in. And so finding that, that there was actually these surprising conversations that could come um, talking to Catholic sisters about, you know, the different practices that they do in their communities, but also just how Catholic sisters, um, many of the ones that I have met are also asking a lot of the same questions that, that, that I've asked about how do you live an authentic 
life? You know, how do you live? Um, yeah, and, and so within that meeting of the first kind of nuns and nuns iteration, there was this real sense of among the people there, I wasn't at this gathering, this is just part of the origin story, was that, you know, we want to keep meeting, we want to keep talking, this, there's something magical that's happening here. These, com these conversations and relationships are really fruitful and they're intergenerational and people are looking for, young adults are looking for older, wiser uh, people who have really walked the walk and lived authentic lives to be mentors kind of along the journey. And so from that gathering, there have been different mushroomed communities that have started up in different parts of the country. And so Grand Rapids, Michigan is one of the original um, groups, but also um, there's been groups in the Boston area that in San Francisco, actually a group of millennials who moved into a, a convent and lived in community with um, a community of Catholic sisters for a residency for six months. Um, there's groups in, in, in Ohio actually as well. If you're interested, I can connect you with the nuns and nuns community there. Um, I'm trying to think of one of the other locations. Washington DC has a group that's been meeting. Yeah, so it's, so there's a national network, which is also really fun. Oh, New York City is another place that has had a nuns and nuns community. And it's just this really, initially I was interested because I was like, oh, well maybe this is something my husband Josh would be interested in because you know I can find connections, intergenerational connections, and some of these conversations within the church context, because that's a place I still feel comfortable being, and I still, you know, feel like I can have those kinds of discussions with elders in, in that context, but not people who are religiously unaffiliated maybe wouldn't have that same opportunity. And, um, and so in and through connecting and starting the Minneapolis community have found, yeah, it's been a really interesting group of, of millennials, some of whom are religious and some of whom are not. And just these wonderful Catholic sisters from not just the visitation order, but from several different Catholic orders here in the Twin Cities. Um, yeah. Great. Um, so you brought up the visitation order um, mm -hmm. that's in not too close from, or not too far from where you are. And at the beginning of the book, you were talking about um, your husband's deconversion and how you were searching for something and you left the Mennonite church you were a part of, found the Baptist church. And I believe you went to interview uh, a sister just north of where you all are at. And in hap happenstance on trick-or-treating, I think it was you found this group of sisters living in your neighborhood. Yeah. Yep. We moved to a new, uh, we bought a house three years ago in Minneapolis and um, discovered you know, so I, so I, I work for the Collegeville Institute, which is an ecumenical organization that's on the grounds of St. John's Abbey, which is a, one of the largest Benedictine monastic communities in North America. So I had already been exposed to these nuns and monks that I would meet through work and just think, this is fascinating. I'm just so curious about their lives. And I started, I met a few times with the spiritual director here at, um, at the Abbey, um, actually at St. Benedict's Monastery with one of the nuns. And... It was just so far away. It was like an hour and a half drive to get here and it just was hard to schedule. And so, yeah, we went trick-or-treating in our new neighborhood um, with our kids and lo and behold, there was a house that looked exactly like every other house on the block. There's no sign. There's no indication that this is a, a religious community. And when I walked in, soon realized from looking at the art on the walls and some of the prayer books that were around that indeed this was a, monast a monastery and, um, 
and it kind of felt like a little bit like a wink from God, like, okay, you, you were giving some excuses why you couldn't drive an hour and a half to do spiritual direction, but look, uh, you've gotten on like, like five, five or six blocks from your house. So there's not really any reason uh, you can't continue exploring this. So that was a really happy, happy discovery. Yeah. And so through there, you talk about your, um, the concept of spiritual singleness and leading to your year long discernment practice and process to potentially become a companion with the visitation. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to know a little bit more about that because it seemed like that there were uh, parts in the book that you wanted to talk more about it maybe. Um, and just either word count or whatever just didn't allow you to to do that. So could you speak a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. So um, I didn't know this as a Protestant, but some Catholic um, monastic orders have different like circles that extend outward from the committed monastic, you know, the, the people who are members who've made vows to live in the community. They will have like lay associations of people who are not committed members, but who are in relationship with that order. And so with the Visitation Sisters, they're called companions um, to the monastery. And in order to become a companion, which isn't a vowed uh, kind of commitment, but it is, like you said, an intention to partner with the sisters in prayer and in ministry and in, in presence. And that's one of their ministries is to be a, a faithful presence in the neighborhood. Um, in order to, do, to become part of that community, you have a year long spiritual formation process where you learn about Salesian spirituality, which is um, named after St. Francis de Sales, who along with St. Jane de Chantal um, were the co-founders of the Visitation Order over 400 years ago in France. So a lot of it is just learning about these two saints that um, started this order and what their lives were like and what what made this spiritual spirituality unique and distinct in and from the other expressions of Catholic faith at that time. And so it was fascinating. You know, I think as a Protestant, I thought, oh, all Catholics are the same as this universal church. You know, they do all the same liturgy. And there is that um, in a lot in you know, there, there is the same liturgy, there is a lot of uniformity, and yet there is so much more diversity within the tradition than I realized. And so learning about one, um, one monastic order and the, its origins was really fascinating to me. And then I found a lot of connection with the saints um, who were part of founding it. Um, St. Francis de Sales is the patron saint of writers. He wrote so much about the love of God, about, um, you know, kind of as a counter balance to the dominant theology of the day, which was um, Calvinism. And so he was terrified for his own salvation. He was so afraid that he was going to hell. And he spent years in torment and finally had this amazing conversion experience um, where he realized that even if he was going to hell, it was worth it to him to live for God today and to live and to live and love God. Like it, it, so taking the eternity out of the equation and just focusing on loving and experiencing God's love today. And so that was kind of one of the core tenets of Salesian spirituality was just this, that God, like, like no longer, not, not that hell wasn't part of the theology because it was, but having it as a counteract or counterbalance to this just obsessive fear of like, am I chosen? Am I not chosen? And instead having a focus being on how do I, 
how do I show love, God, love for God today and for my neighbor today? How do I experience that? And so he wrote these voluminous treaties on the love of God. Um, and like, yeah, tons and tons of pages of, 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 these, of this book. And um, he's considered a love doctor of the church, of the Catholic church because of it. Um, so he's, he's an incredible writer. Um, and I just connected with all that message a lot, especially as it related to being in an interfaith marriage, because I grew up being convinced that anyone who didn't believe in the Christianity that I believed would be going to hell. And so that is one of the major tensions within an interfaith relationship is how do you understand that difference? How, you know, is God still good in the lives of the people who believe differently than you? How do you extend grace? How do you understand? How do you understand that? And so St. Francis, um, I really connected with him. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you, um, you bring up in, in the last, I believe the last chapter of the book, a conversation between your father-in-law and your husband um, which is just heartbreaking having heard it dozens of times from people about the, the well, I, I just am really sad. We're not going to spend eternity with each other. And th- as our listeners will know, we've talked about hell and, and afterlife and that concept before, but um, it was just absolutely heartbreaking. And I love that you bring up or that you brought up um, St. Francis's view on that, because one of the things that uh, I wanted to ask you was your active choice in continuing to participate in the church after your conversation with your husband about his, um, uh, I'm blanking on what what is it, the D... Deconversion or deconversion. De- Thank you. Yeah. Sorry. Um, just because, you know, that, that seems like such a tense moment and you, and it's, it comes off very tense in, in the book and in your struggle with it. But uh, what was it that made you continue to choose to decide to show up for, or figure out how to show up for God and, and, and love people in that time? Following his deconversion or following that conversation or. Uh, let's go both. Why not? Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's, that is kind of the central question, I think, of, of the book is like how, how to hold on to faith um, when, yeah, there, the contradictions and some of the painfulness of some of the theology is exposed like that. Um, and I will say this about my in-laws, that they're so loving and so warm and so accepting in, in, and I just appreciate them that they've been posting about the book on their Facebook feeds. I've just been shocked, you know, at, at just the level of, of love that they have for us. So I just want to say that first and foremost, it was, it was, then they've read that passage and they know that it's there. Um, but I did want to be honest about, um, you know, what, it, what it is like when people, you know, when you're con- Confronted with that theology of, well, you're going to hell because you don't believe X, Y, Z. Um, and I think for me, knowing that the Christian tradition is wide and deep and that there isn't a whole lot of consensus on some of these issues, I, I don't come down with one like definitive, like, okay, this is, this is what I believe about hell or this is what I believe about eternity because I don't really know. I, I really don't know. Um, this is the tradition that I have found goodness and and I found love and I've found relationship with God and it's the one that I've chosen to continue wrestling with and 
um, that's kind of the note that I end the book on is that I hope that we're surprised, you know, <laughs> like I hope that some of these things that I've been taught about hell, I hope that we're surprised and that God's love is bigger and wider than we can imagine. But who's to say, right? And I still, you know, and within the Christian tradition, I, I still hold to those beliefs. Um, and yet, I don't know. I just, I think that God's love is bigger and wider and deeper and just beyond, beyond what we can really comprehend and categorize in a lot of ways. And I think if I didn't have that view, I would be scared every day of my life. The alternative is fear, you know, and to live just afraid for my husband's soul, you know, and, and I don't know if I could, if I could stay in a committed relationship, if I was always afraid for him in that way. Um, and so releasing that fear and, and just letting it be a mystery and continuing to pray and, and seek God the best way that I can, like that's, that's the only way that I can continue in this tradition. Um, and cause yeah, that, that alternative just, it doesn't sound good to me. It doesn't sound like an abundant life. It sounds like, um, you know, being really miserly and, and just cowering. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but no, I, I, I think, um, I mean, if it doesn't, that's okay because people need to read the book. Um, so I want to switch and pivot a little bit, uh, because there was one chapter there, there were a few chapters in here where it was just like, I can tell we're of the same generation and similar backgrounds. Um, I could spend the entire podcast talking about your experience with new monasticism and going back and forth. We talked a little bit about that, but there was something I wasn't expecting when I was reading. And I was just like, are you freaking kidding me? Which was you talk about the Camino. Oh yeah. Which is mm -hmm. something I've wanted to do for years it's a 500 mile pilgrimage. It's, it, it, it seems exciting, but my favorite part about your story in that is when you talk about trying to convert a non-Christian, mm -hmm. which is the most awkward thing you could ever do as a person. And it just like, what, um, what was going through your mind during that? Because I'm always curious when I know of other people who have gone through that road. And I, it's, it's awkward and terrible when you're trying to do it when you have the same context and culture and language as somebody. What was it like trying to do it to, a, I believe, it was a Frenchman who mm -hmm. you're just in the middle of this 500-mile pilgrimage on the other side of the world? Yeah, I mean, I can look back at my 23-year-old self uh, with a lot of grace and compassion. I, you know, I was a recent college grad and um, went to an evangelical school and um, really, really wanted people to know Jesus, you know, and I still want people to know Jesus. Like, I, I'm not that different than I was then. I just think that um, I, I felt this pressure to share the gospel in a certain kind of way, I guess. And so, on the Camino, um, you know, that was one of the first times I really was around a lot of people who were not Christians in a spiritual kind of setting, which, you know, we can look fast forward to nuns and nuns, and that's very much the context, is, is people who yeah. are not committed to any one tradition and yet are really curious and really interested in talking about faith. 
Um, Which I wasn't trying to knock the idea of people wanting to know who Jesus is. And I, yeah. I mean, you know, we, our podcast is called Avenger Bros. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was just like, I hadn't, that was one story in the book. I can safely say I was not expecting to, to hear. So it was just like, you know, I went to an extremely evangelical college and for part of one of our uh, class assignments, we had to create a tract, like actually illustrate one. All right, yeah. And give it out to somebody. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I was just curious what, um, what that experience was like in a different culture, country, language in the middle of a, a, a spiritual um, uh, hiking experience, which is a bad way yeah, to describe I mean- it, but. Yeah, I mean, it was uncomfortable. Like, it, it felt like the words, the words didn't feel natural. It felt, uh, you know, it was, it was a fear. It, it felt like there was a lot of fear still um, kind of wrapped up in, in that. Like, okay, I've got to check this box. I've got to make sure that I'm shining my light. I've got to take advantage of opportunities. Maybe God led me to this person to share this, this message. Um, and who knows, you know, like I've, I've not, I'm not in contact with that person. I highly doubt that, that they were convinced by my uh, American, 23 year old American evangelical ideas. Um, yet I wanted, I thought, I felt like it was important to put that in the story because that was the context in which, you know, my husband and I met when we were 20. Um, that was the world and the belief system and so the expression of faith that we shared. And so I think it's also just trying to show the journey of the narrator, you know, myself and my husband and um, why this was such a big deal. Because I've had some readers of the book who come from, you know, very mainline Christian traditions or who are not religious and are like, well, why is this such a big deal? Like, I don't like the who don't get why it was such a devastating thing um, for this to happen, especially, you know, when it did, which was, you know, we were you know, hadn't even turned 30. It was very early in our marriage. We had a, a baby um, to suddenly feel like I, I, I feel like I have no idea what to do next. Um, and it was because, you know, that was, we, we thought we were going to dedicate our lives to not necessarily evangelism, but to living our lives radically for God. And that was a big part of our shared union. So, yeah. So I felt like it was important to share the awkward conversion story because, you know, it's not that different than, yeah conversation my in-laws had with my husband at the end you know it's it's a similar impulse and it comes from a place of really wanting people to know and experience god's love and yet there's a lot of fear in well what does that mean then if they don't hear this message or if they don't respond in the way that i've been told is the way you need to respond in order to experience eternal life yeah i mean you know at the beginning of this um i think i was able to make it sound like or not make it sound like but um stumble my way through saying how much I appreciate the earnestness of this book, because it's those stories where you actually feel like you're watching it happen. Mm. Um, and, you know, bringing up the inner system, the idea of wanting to radically live your life for God, there is one quote and we're almost at our time and I want to be respectful of, of your time. Uh, you say Easter Sunday came and went, but the real work is loving the world as it actually is. As St. Francis writes, we are not to, waste our energy hankering after a different sort of life, but go on with our own. Um, I absolutely loved uh, that part. And I feel like that's a a strong message that you carry throughout the book is um, what it actually looks like to go through deconstruction 
and the slow parts of reconstruction, which, you know, I believe is absolutely crucial to the conversation, especially these days. Um, and I am just curious before we wrap up, if there's anything uh, that you want to say about that. Yeah, I think, hmm. yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like I had said, you know, my husband still isn't a Christian. He isn't um, part of the faith tradition. And yet in this story, I also am going through a deconstruction and a reconstruction uh, of my faith. And that's where, when you have started in such an earnest, idealistic place, there's a long ways to fall from there, from that place. Um, and then it just takes a lot of time, I think, to then pick up the pieces of what that was and, and figure out, well, then where's the meaning and purpose and where's God and all this? How do I understand myself and, and my faith? And I think I just, yeah, for anyone listening, that it's absolutely possible to continue in this journey without all of the answers. Um, I think that that's what faith is, is stepping out and continuing in the, the sauce of life in like the realities of what life actually looks like versus the ideal version that you thought you were going to be living and that God can be good and meet us in that place. Um, and yeah, and that marriage can survive these things. Um, and it can be beautiful. Speaking of, uh, and one last thing before we, uh, I let you go, you, in the last couple of pages, or not last couple of pages, about two-thirds of the way, sorry, my cat, two-thirds of the way through the book, uh, you write that if all goes well for our marriage, it will end in death, dust to dust, from nothing to something to nothing, or from elements to creation back to elements. Um as somebody who is married and has gone through quite a bit, especially when it comes to faith change and, you know, coming, I, I left Christianity for a while, came back, surprised the hell out of my wife with that. Um, especially when I told her I was going to go back into ministry at some point. And wow. just the, uh, that is, I was reading that right before we, uh, before we started talking and I was just struck because I have never heard marriage described as the best case scenario. One of you will no longer be here at the end of it, which was just, I thought it was absolutely great. Well, thanks. Yeah. I mean, memento mori, that's another monastic, uh, monastic concept of, you know, meditating on your death and, um, Catholics. Oh, there you go. Okay. Show yeah. me your tattoo. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. That was, a, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the prayers I do night prayer with the sisters. I did before the pandemic. And that was, you know, that's one of the last lines of the prayer is that you pray for a good death, you know? Um, and I think there's something, yeah, that really helps you evaluate and live life differently when you have that death ahead of you and, and not in a kind of nihilistic sort of way, but in a, you know, we, we don't have all the answers for what life and eternity looks like in and through God. Um, and yet we have today. Um, and how do I live that marriage and that commitment as best I can through God's grace? And what's so great about that, the just subtle switching of the concept is coming up evangelical. It's, you know, you're always waiting for death. As in, you, 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 you talk about how... Um, one of the sisters, I believe, describes how the outsiders look at um, sisters and, and monks as kind of almost fetishizing and dehumanization. Yep. And 
I was taught to do the same thing as an evangelical with death. And so just going from that concept of constantly worried about the afterlife, waiting for death, can't wait to go home to the, the writings of St. Francis and choosing to go one day at a time um, with it. I, I, I thought it was great. Like I said, I don't read a whole lot of spiritual memoirs. This was spectacular. I'm, I'm very thankful for the time I got to speak with you about it. Uh, the book is called Blessed Are the Nuns, Mixed Faith, Marriage, and My Search for Spiritual Community by Stina Kaismeyer-Cook. I just screwed up the last name, didn't I? That's okay. It's okay. Thanks so much for having me on, and, and it's always wonderful to have readers to connect with the story that you spend so much time in obscurity writing. So thank you. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, so the book came out yesterday. Go pick it up. We have the, um, uh, the links in the show notes. Make sure you check that out. Um, Stina, is there anything else you want to say? Where can people find you at on the internet? Yeah, if you go to stinacasey.com, you will find links to you know where you can buy the book and find me on social media. And yeah, love to connect. So, well, thanks. great. Hopefully, you all check it out. I have been your co-host George for this week. So, have a great one. <laughs> <laughs>